Such familiar events that are going to be taking place today. Hey guys, I'm Pastor Jay and this is the Preacher's Corner. Welcome to a brand new week of going through the Gospel of John. We're in chapter number 13. We're going to be starting off at the last supper feast of the Lord, as is known as a Seder meal by the Hebrew people as they celebrate every year the blessing of the deliverance that they received from God to escape from Egypt and the mighty way in which God revealed His hand uh, to deliver His people. And so the Pesach, or the Passover, is that which is remembered every year and of course, with Jesus, it was exactly the same as being a Hebrew and in specific of the tribe of Judea as being a Jew, that he celebrated this, this Pesach, that he celebrated the Seder meal. And as we know it in Christian circles as the last supper of our Lord, this is the meal that Jesus would celebrate with his disciples in the upper room. This meal is a meal that consists of four cups to be celebrated as, as being the first cup is, is that which is called the cup of bondage. As recognizing the difficulties of the slavery and the bitterness that the children of Israel were in bondage to Egypt, but keeping in mind that the scripture reveals Egypt as being a type of the world so that they would uh, in this feast, be recognizing that in the world they are held in bondage, a slavery of sorts, and to what? Their own sin nature is what is being recognized. And so, we find the second cup is being called the cup of plagues. Now, kind of a scary title to the second cup, but during this, this partaking of the second cup, instead of being drunk, they take their finger they dip it in the cup of the of the wine that they have, and they they put one drop on a a plate or on a napkin or what what have you before them, and each time they recite the ten plagues. With each drop, they recite each plague from one to ten, and at the end of that, then they come together and they celebrate with a pizza a piece of matzah and drinking of the cup. Then comes the third cup of the Seder meal, and that cup is the one that we in Christian circles are most familiar with because this cup is called the cup of redemption. And in the cup of redemption, it is when we receive the, the bread that was hidden, the, the broken piece of matzah that was covered in what was called the afikomen, which is burial cloth, and, and the, that which is hidden has been revealed, and there's a price that has been paid to receive it back from the master of the feast. And this one piece is what is then broken off of and shared for everyone that is in the, the feast room. And the cup that everyone would have in the main cup of the feast at the, the master's side of the table would be the third cup that would be partaken. This is when Jesus said of the bread, this is my body which is broken for you, as each one of the disciples would have taken a piece off of that one piece of matzah. And Jesus would take the cup and he would bless the cup and say, this is the covenant in my blood which is shed for you for the remission of your sins. And so that they would all take. And this would be the, the third cup of blessing. And, and then the fourth cup, is known as the cup of Hallel, or the cup of praise. 
This is the cup in which they end the feast, longing to see Elijah walk through the door, longing for the the hope of Israel, the blessing of of God's deliverance for his people in this year. And and at the end of the the fourth cup being taken, they sing from the Psalms a praise unto the Lord. And then they shout, next year in Jerusalem is what they shout, uh, just for the hope that the Passover will bring them into being passed from this life unto eternal life and this kingdom to the kingdom of God. So a lot of things uh, that are really exciting that happen in this feast, in these moments, and something is very important for us to understand because we're entering into this Last Supper of our Lord. We're entering into where the Lamb of God is delivered as we get from John 13 to John 17. We're going through a lot of detailed information about, about Jesus' plans for His disciples' future, about Jesus' location for His disciples' future, and about the hopes that we have being connected to the promises that the disciples receive in these chapters. So all of this very important for us to receive today. Father, we are grateful for the blessing of the opportunity to be able to dig into your word that your Holy Spirit would be alive in us to make known to us the reality of these truths. We may receive of these things the great blessings that you have prepared for us and that we may be able to know even as we are known. Thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing in the blessed name of Jesus today. Amen. All right, guys. In the reading of our section of Scripture today, we're going to be going from verse number 1 down to verse number 20. So the, the Bible begins, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who was has bathed, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, 
you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Thank you, Father, for the reading of your word. May it bless our souls in the receiving of its truth today. Amen. Very exciting things that are going on here, guys. We'll get right back up to verse number one, and we'll dig into a lot of the details about what's happening here. We realize that it's before the Feast of the Passover. We understand that while they're in this upper room, they're, they're at supper. The supper that they're feasting upon is the Seder meal as they are gathered together. That this ceremonial washing actually still happens today, not in the framework of it being the, the feet of the people that gather at the table, but the hands. There is a ceremonial washing of the hands. And this was something that was very exciting as when we entered into a Christian home when I was over in Burundi in Africa, one of the very exciting things that would take place is the way in which as they had guests in their home, as they had the table prepared, which was really a, a an end table in the living room that had all of the different bowls of, of foods that would be prepared sitting on it with the family gathered around the, in the living room, this this. Uh, coffee table as it would be in our homes with with all of these different dishes prepared but that a basin would be brought out a large bowl would be brought out in a pitcher of water and so that it was given to pour upon the hands of each person as they'd pour the pitcher of water so as to reveal to the home the hands are clean and so the guests received of the pouring first or of the first waters so as to be the purest in in concept of the waters that that would be able to wash our hands and that we would we would be honored in this fashion and so you see that jesus is is preparing himself for this feast and some of the things that we already know that are going to transpire and we see this account happening in luke we see this account happening in matthew that we understand that Jesus is, is connecting this people unto himself in this upper room. This is something that is going to be so very intimate. Now, for this period of time, this was something at first to be as an insult. The reason why it was considered to be something of an insult is because the disciples themselves would see themselves as being something more than just an average servant. And they would look at Jesus and they would consider Jesus to be way much more than just an average servant. They would see him as being, one, their Messiah. They would think of him as being, two, maybe their king. They would think of him, three, as being an excellent teacher if, if the other two were not necessarily a reality. 
but still that he was an excellent teacher and they would never want to have any one of their teachers as being in this position of, of being offering this, this foot washing. You, you just don't do that, right? So you come to this scenario where you, you would have Jesus put this, this apron upon himself and that he would get down on his hands and knees and then he would begin to wash his disciples' feet. A lot of those disciples wouldn't know what to say. They wouldn't know what to do. So they just sit there and receive it because they don't know what else to do. It's kind of a, a shocking moment for them. But Peter is has always been the guy that was never lacking for words. And so we get this discourse with Peter that we're about to look at. But it's so important for us to really soak in this first verse and the understanding that they're right there at the Feast of Passover, that they're in this upper room that has been garnished and prepared for their meal, that they're in the midst of receiving this meal right now, that they're celebrating of the of the cups of the Seder meal, that they're that they're prepared to be able to have their feast and all of this is happening. Now, as I'm talking about this, there may be some of you who are quite familiar with it. Having been through a Seder meal with me over in Virginia, uh, we've done one or two Seder meals together. The very first one we did with Walter uh, Saunders, which was really cool, and, and Walter and I got together and we, we hosted a Seder meal at the church and gave explanation of everything, and then the next year, I hosted a Seder meal at the church and, and gave explanation again. And so you're probably a little bit familiar with what I'm talking about if you're there in Virginia. But out here in Dakotas, guess what? We're going to be teaching the Seder meals if, if not being able to host one because it's, it's a part of our history as Christians. Now, you probably wouldn't have ever heard that before, uh, being from a lot of the mainline Christian denominations who have believed that they have replaced Israel and that they are the new vibe. But the reality is, is that this isn't something that was meant just for the Jews. This was something that was meant for the children of God. As Jesus himself took this feast and he revealed himself through this feast, even to this day we ought to be teaching this feast and revealing Jesus through it as well so that we understand our Messiah, that we understand who he was and all of the elements that this feast reveals us so that we have that connection of what it is to be in Christ through this Seder meal. But we understand from the very first verse, of course, the, the feast of the Passover. But when Jesus knew that his hour was come to depart out of this world to the Father, now, you understand that Jesus, for this whole time, he knows exactly when he's going to die. He knows, he knows the way in which he, he must die. It's already prophesied that, he, that he's got to hang upon the tree. He's already prophesied to the reality that the Jews can't do anything to him because, one, he knows the law uh, of Rome, but two, it's necessary for him to die in such a manner as to be hung upon a tree as revealed by the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter number 3 so that he may take the curse of man upon himself, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. So it's necessary for him to take that curse upon himself of all mankind in order for him to be able to pay the price for all mankind. That, by the way, the blood of bulls and goats and that of lambs could not satisfy. It, it was of necessity that a man pay 
for the life of man. This was even the testimony that we had gone across already over in, in John chapter number 12, or I believe it was, or John chapter number 10, I think, when, when the council had gathered together and Caiaphas was chastising the others of the Sanhedrin court saying, don't you people understand that it's necessary for one person to die for the whole nation? Don't you understand that this is what his purpose is, is to die for us? And so that even Caiaphas would recognize that this was the necessity of Jesus as being essentially the Lamb of God without Caiaphas admitting that Jesus was the Lamb of God. So you, you come to this position where Jesus knows that his hour is upon him. You know, all of that time before he was able to escape capture and he was able to, to get around people and things of that nature because he kept saying, my hour is not yet come. But this isn't something that he can say in this moment. He knows that, that his hour has come. He knows that it's time for him to depart from this world. And by the way, he knows the, the horrible way that he's going to depart from this world. This is something really important as well, is that there are some denominational teachings that exist out there that say, well, well, I mean, when we pass away from, from horrible illnesses or diseases or, or, or different things that are just horrendous to us, that, that certainly this wasn't the plan of God, that we would die in this manner, that, that our loved ones be taken in this way. But we have to understand that Jesus even knew the, the design of the way in which he was going to be taken, one, because it was necessary in order to fulfill all prophecy, but... The Father had already made prophecy through mankind that this was the heinous nature in which his son would have to die at the hands of the, the Gentiles, even of the hands of those that were most hateful. So we, we've got to realize that the way in which we're taken from this world is not given unto us to know. There are many ways in which we could be taken from this world. One, peacefully resting in our bed without, without a turbulent sigh. Uh, another getting hit by a vehicle, another being taken by an illness, another, uh, you know, earthquakes or natural disasters. I mean, we, we just don't know how we're going to check out of this world. But one thing we do know is that there is a Moadim for us. There is an appointed time for each and every one of us to leave this earth and that at that moment that it is our time to check out as it was. You've got to know the Master. Because if you don't know Jesus in that time that is appointed unto you to, to check out of this world, then for an eternity shall you be separated from the very presence of God. For the love of God was given unto man through the Lamb of God, which is Christ Jesus. Very important to understand that. And that Jesus would reveal here at the end of verse number one, it says that when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, once he receives of those that belong to his Father, he never abandons them, but he remains faithful, ever true. Having loved his own, loved them to the end. Very beautiful truth. And by the way, there is no end for Jesus, for only in the transition from, from this mortality to the immortality that he enjoyed before coming into this world, that Jesus would never end. Life can never die. Life can never end. And death can never live. And as we are born into this world in death, 
without the gift of life, we can never live. And that that's something that people have such a hard time wrapping their mind around is because when they come into this life, of course, they're breathing, their hearts beating, their eyes are open, their ears, they believe they can hear, they're, they're speaking, they're animated, everything about them seems to be alive. But that's the same thing that Jesus was teaching about the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter number 3 at the very first verse moving down is that to the world, you seem to be very alive. You seem healthy. You seem, you seem in every account a, a viable human being, living being. But the reality is, is that because of separation from sin that existed all the way back in Genesis 3, all of the progeny who would come from Adam would come into this world dead. And that it is of necessity that we receive of the Lamb of God to receive of the forgiveness of God and to, to come into the life that he extends through his Lamb. So we come into the world dead. And that death is recognized not in the animation or, or the, the lack of animation of a human body and not because we're not breathing anymore or our heart's not beating and blah, 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 blah. We are dead because we are separated from life, and God is life. And so because we are separated from God because of the veil that is between us through our sin, death is never being able to have contact with life because we have rejected life in rejecting God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So effectively, though we are alive, yet we are dead, just as just as Mike was saying this this morning in, in his thoughts for the day, we're a dead man walking because of this reality that, that at birth in sin we are separated from God. Now denominations have tried to answer that by providing infant baptism or pedo-baptism as to say that the waters are going to be something that would protect the child at its birth from the from the original sin that is recognized as born in so that God would be able to recognize that child in the event that that it at its life up until the point of confirmation in these particular faith groups that that the child will be protected from death but of course we understand as the as the scripture teaches that water has no efficacy of, of protection whatsoever. In fact, we understand that from the teachings as concerning baptism, according to the scriptures, is that baptism, which, by the way, is something that the Jews had been doing for thousands of years up until the time that, that quote-unquote Christians got a hold of it and took off with it, this is, this is a consecration for cleanliness and a consecration for service. It has nothing to do with salvation at all. Nothing at all. And so that we understand that, that God recognizes that life comes into this world. Remember that no child could even come into the womb of, of moms and dads lest God allow for that life to come to pass. So that, so that we understand through Sarah, as was recognized with Abraham and Sarah, we understand with, with uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and the birth between Isaac and Rebecca, we understand even the birth for Rachel and the children that she was able to have with, with Joseph and Benjamin is the only two that she was able to have is because God closed the wombs. And then at God's appointed time, he opened the wombs so that children cannot come into this world lest God allow it. 
It's not like God is not paying attention to who's being born, where they're being born, how they're being born, and to whom they're being born. God is the one who authorizes every single life that comes into this world. And God also has authorized that that life will only come alive if that life turns to Jesus, because other than Jesus, there is not but death. So that's something we have to soak in. So he comes down in verse number two and he says, during supper. So let me give you an idea about this supper. Keep in mind, I was talking about the, the Seder meal, that it is a four cup feast, that each cup carries a certain significance to it, and that there are steps related to each cup that are partaken in each moment so that you you have the remembrance as was required by the way by the Lord in Exodus chapter 12 of the deliverance from Egypt so they're in this this supper they're at this feast it is regularly if celebrated the way in which Jesus would celebrate it this would be a four hour feast so they're going to be in this upper room for a little bit of time during this evening. Ultimately, if you have this feast starting, say it's the spring of the year, so you could have sundown somewhere near 7, 6.30 or 7, so that the feast would begin at the position of sundown because that would be the marking of a new day for them. They don't go from midnight to, to noon kind of concept. They go from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. as it was just as a general rule. So as coming to that, that position of sundown, they're entering into their new day. And as they enter into their new day, their feast begins. You're dealing with four hours. So you, let's just use six as an example that makes it a little bit easier. So by by 10 o'clock at night, they're they're finalizing their, their Seder meal at that point. Which, by the way, they sing uh, of the Psalms as, as a hymn at the end of this particular meal, which is the, the process, and then they would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So he would be in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane from about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, and he would be praying through the night uh, during that time before his crucifixion. He'd be praying through the night up to about 3 or 4 o'clock that morning when he's going to be captured by the Romans. And so you get you start to get an idea of the timeline of, of how all things are transpiring. And so we see that in verse 2 it says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So we understand that, that Judas has already made a deal with the Sanhedrin court. Judas has already received his 30 pieces of silver. He's simply waiting for the opportunity to be able to light out on the group that is gathered together in that upper room for the purpose of going and, and gathering his Roman soldiers that would be placed under his command for the purpose of going in and arresting Jesus. So it's already in his heart. And, and as this would say, when the devil had already put it into his heart. Now it's interesting that we've got an accusation that's made against the devil here. Without question, I can imagine that this was a, a portion of the devil's own work that would be leading Judas Iscariot in this betrayal that would be taking place. But also, I understand that this is the plan of God. 
So what we're going to find here as revealed to us in verse number 2 is that even the devil can't make a move without God's authority. That the devil believes himself to be above God. That the devil believes himself to be working or operating autonomous from the will of God or from the plan of God. That the devil would even believe that he would be slighting God through his own will is to discover from these scriptures that the devil is simply doing what is the bidding of the Father without his understanding. So even the devil is adult. He doesn't understand that, that the very activities that he is engaged in through the life of Judas are the very activities that are necessary for God to be able to accomplish his will and delivering his son to the Romans for the purpose of salvation to come to man. So, what the devil thought he was doing for a good work of destruction on his own behalf is only the will of God that can bring salvation to all mankind. Hmm. I guess he wasn't as smart as we like to make him out to be, is he? It's just he's smarter than us, and that's the problem. So, it comes down to verse number 3. He says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand... Now, this is kind of a very important point, is that we understand the devil's already put it into the heart of Judas, what he's going to have to do, but Jesus already having that omniscience, knowing already that the Father hath given everything into his hands. So, so he has, in this moment, in this feast, he has realized his accomplishment of everything that he was sent to do. He knows that everything that needed to be done was done. Everything that needed to be accomplished is accomplished. Jesus has fulfilled his oath to his Father. There's nothing more exciting than that, except for the, the challenge that comes to the heart of Jesus in his humanity that recognizes that even though he's accomplished everything that he knows is necessary for him to have done on this earth, yet still he doesn't want to exactly check out the way that he's going to have to check out. <laughs> because that, that, that suffering, that, that pain, that, that agony that, that he knows that he's going to have to go through, it's not like he hasn't seen a crucifixion before. It's not like the criminals haven't been crucified all of his life growing up and that he has not passed by those crosses that add those people hanging from them, dying. It's not like he hasn't seen that before. It, it is a, a regular occurrence of the kingdom of Rome. He's, he's quite familiar with it. And by the way, it's because the, the place of crucifixion was just outside the Temple Mount so that all of Ju Judaism would, would recognize the potential if they crossed Rome of what was going to happen to him on that cross. So it's something that's very familiar with Jesus. This isn't like it was the first time it was done. And he knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. He's, he's done everything that he's required of him for his service, and he's, he's done even more. He's, he understands that, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So it's not even a matter of the knowledge of where he's going to be, of what he's going to be doing, of who he is, and what he shall return to. And all of that is is no suffering, no pain, uh, the the throne that, that he'll enter uh, upon his return, of the authority, I mean, the, the connection, all of these things as, as God, he's going back to. But guys, it's that transition. 
it's that transition that is what is so burdensome. And he knows. So verse 4, he rose from supper. He laid aside his garments. Now, this is in the midst of the supper. Now, before the meal that you eat, you're going to have uh, the first cup shared. And, and there are some things that you do with that. In the first cup, you take some some parsley, usually is the, the main herb. It's called a bitter herb. You take the parsley, you're going to drip it or dip it, I should say, into a cup of salt water so as to represent the tears of Israel and the bitterness of their bondage. You're going to eat that parsley with that salt water on it and, it, and it may be bitter to your mouth and it may leave a bad taste in your mouth, but that's the idea of the the bitterness of the bondage, and it should leave a bad taste. And then then you're going to take a piece of the matzah as you're, as you're still looking at this particular cup of bondage, and you're going to take a piece of the matzah, and you're going to scoop up some horseradish. Usually they like the fresh ground and, and, and done horseradish. Oh boy, that'll turn your nose inside out, and it'll cause a sting in, in your sinus cavities. You take that piece of matzah, and you you eat that piece of horseradish, and you jerk back with a with a reaction because of how it it burns at at the first. And this is meant for you to feel the bitterness, to feel the 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 sting of of suffering. And this is a remembrance, again, of what Israel had to go through, a remembrance of what the church went through in Rome. I mean, the same thing crosses over, the bitterness of the bondage that the church had dealt with through Rome. And we understand that that at, as you pass by the, the cup of plague or the cup of bondage and you enter into the cup of plagues and of course you're remembering every one of the plagues you're remembering the the water that was turned into blood you're remembering the frogs that would come from the water you're remembering the the lice and the flies that would come uh, to, upon man because of the death of the frogs that come onto the land you remember the the, the, all of the sufferings, the boils that, that would rise up on the skin and the, and the suffering to that. And ultimately, by the 10th plague, you remember death. And at that death, you, you would then celebrate the second cup of, of this time. And, and before going to the third cup, that cup of redemption, there is a meal that is shared. You're, 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 if you were in Jesus's day, you'd be eating a lamb, and you would be, you would be celebrating with some matzo ball soup, or you would, you would be eating these different things, and everything bland, everything as as unprepared as possible, as remembering the flight out of Egypt that they were not able even to have leavened bread. Uh, for the leaven to be able to rise in the, the the bread, but that you had unleavened bread, everything was bare bones, and so that you would you would have this moment. Well, it's in this moment of the uh, between the second cup and the third cup that Jesus would rise from the supper. For before the the second cup or or before the third cup, you would have instruction happening. Jesus would be working with the disciples through the celebration of this feast, and they would be engaged in what is called the Haggadah, the, the, the process, as it was, the ceremony of this particular feast. But when it comes to the time where they are making preparation to be able to serve the meal, where they're all going to eat together, 
Jesus does something that is so unorthodox. Jesus does something that is not expected by anybody in this upper room. But keep in mind, the only people in this upper room, as it is assumed, by the way, the only people that are in this upper room are those closest to him, those of his apostles, numbering in the twelve, with Judas, as, as he may still be among them, and and Jesus. So that's all you have in this upper room. Well, needless to say, one of the disciples should have been the one that ceremonially washed the others as to be a servant. But no one washed anyone yet because everyone was seeing themselves as being equal to each other. And so that there would never be one that would submit themselves to the rest of them to, to wash or be the wash man, because that would ultimately, to their thinking, be the insult of me being lesser than all of the rest when we all are disciples equally together. So what you've got going on here at this feast is you've got a measure of pride that is existent inside of the hearts of all of these people because they all see themselves as being not just, not just disciples of a rabbi, but they see themselves as being disciples of the Messiah, which means that they see themselves as being people higher than everybody else. They see themselves as being subjects to the king in recognition of their king, and at that point, being the aide-de-camp of their king, they are at a position well above the rest of the society. So they, they've got this measure of pride that exists in their hearts. So who's going to wash the disciples? Who's going to wash their feet, even? As it was the ceremony of washing the hands, which is which is a part of the Haggadah, which is a part of the, the, the preparation for the meals, the washing of hands. But Jesus goes farther than washing the hands. Jesus gets down and washes the feet. Well, this is something that none of those disciples would even dream of thinking of doing because of the way in which they see themselves in the status that they have ranked themselves. And a lot of times... People really don't think about this when they, when they study the scriptures, but the reality of what's happening here is that there is such a measure of pride that is existent inside of every single one of these disciples. By the way, even inside of John, that, it, that is being recognized here, that they, they wouldn't even dare think of getting on their knees to wash each other's feet. It isn't that they didn't like each other. It isn't that they didn't respect each other. It isn't that there wasn't a recognized age range and a recognized acceptance of those who are older as being treated better, you know, because they're seniors, they're the elders. All of this stuff may be true. But when it comes to that ceremonial washing, everyone from the youngest to the oldest is looking around for the servant to come and do the job. But who do they see? But Jesus is about to do the job. <laughs> and he, he, he says it. He rose from the supper, the preparation of beginning to eat the meal. He rose and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. 
I'm telling you, this is something so unorthodox. This is something that is so strange and foreign to these people because they, there is this expectation that this this is not your job, Jesus. This, this is not your, your position. You shouldn't be doing this. What's wrong with you? You're the master. You're the king. And it says that he began to wash their feet and wipe them from the towel that was wrapped around him. Now he comes to the spokesman. I mean, he washes John's feet, and John just doesn't know what in the world to do. He's just stunned. He washes Andrew's feet. He washes all of these other guys. And Nathaniel's feet. Remember, Nathaniel, Jesus would walk up to him and say, Ah, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile, for I saw you as you were sitting under this tree. And, and Nathaniel said, Oh, master, you know, even his feet being washed, he doesn't know what to do at this moment. What do you do? What do you say? How do you chastise your king if your king decides that he's going to do this thing? But then it comes to Peter. Peter says, you're going to wash my feet? Jesus said, listen, <laughs> what I'm doing right now, you just, you don't understand, but soon you will Peter jerks back. He says, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. In other words, I can't believe you're even thinking of doing this thing. You're the king. Have you forgotten who you are, Lord? You're, you're Messiah. You're, we should be washing your feet. You shouldn't be washing our feet. Oh. Now we come to the conclusion of it, don't we? You're right, Peter. You should have gotten your pride out of the way to be able to get down on the ground and wash the feet of the blessed Lord. You're right, Peter. You should have donned that apron upon yourself and taken care of the rest of your brethren. You're right, Peter. You should have been the man. But you weren't. But your pride got in the way and you didn't serve your brethren. But your pride got in the way and all of your pride has gotten in the way. You're right. You should have been the ones but you weren't. And so Jesus demonstrates for them what it means to be his disciple. He said, Lord, you, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. You don't have any share with me. Peter and his denseness, but let's be fair, we would all be in the same boat here. Peter in his denseness, though, I got to pick on him a little bit, says, don't just do my feet then. I mean, if it, if it means having a part with Jesus, don't stop at my feet. Praise God. Start at my head. And just drip it all the way down. I mean, if this is what it means to be clean, right? I, I want to be all the way clean. I don't want to be a portion clean or a piece clean. Give me everything. Wash me whole. I don't want to just be a piece of the part. I want to be part. He said, not my feet only, but also my hands, my head. Wash me, Lord. And Jesus said, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. You know, you take a regular bath, right? It's not the necessity that you're dirty everywhere. But when, when sandals are the primary shoe of, of the day and the, the dusty lanes and streets and dirt and hills and everywhere you're traveling, it's guaranteed your feet are going to be an absolute dirt wreck by the end of the day. The rest of your body having clothes 
laid upon them and and having regular bathings and washings that you, you, you keep yourself clean, but see your feet. Well, this is the this is the thing that is in contact with the world the most, and so we we, we can liken our feet unto our heart, because our heart is that thing which is which is touched by the world the most in every day. Our body, our vessel, we wash, we clean, we we get dirty, we we wash it off. We get sticky from all kinds of different resins and things that we might be working with. We wash, we get that stuff off. We we love the feeling of our flesh being clean. And Jesus was making that statement. He said, "You are clean all over, but your feet." And you see, we can be clean all over outwardly, but our heart being corrupt. This is the issue that Jesus is dealing with. And he says, not all of you are clean. Now, he washed every foot. But Jesus said, not all of you are clean. Because he knows what is the heart of man. And when he had washed their feet, he put his outer garments and resumed his place, the head of the table, and said, do you understand what I've done to you? <laughs> He said, he said, let me explain. You call me teacher. You call me Lord. You're right. I am. This is something where Jesus takes the role of authority, even though everybody saw him washing their feet. Now they're like, what do we do? He's now a servant. What is the deal? Jesus said, no, 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 no. You call me your teacher and you call me your king. You're right, because I am. He said, but if I, your king and your teacher, have washed your feet, you don't have any right to do less. You, you have got to wash one another's feet also. In other words, if I have, have cleaned the, the most insignificant portion of you, then you guys ought to be taking care of the most insignificant among each other. You ought to be taking care of yourself. You ought to be paying attention to the struggles, the sufferings, the difficulties of the heart. You ought to be reaching out and loving one another as I have loved you love one another. Jesus said, I gave you an example so that you should do just as I've done for you. Why? Because a servant is not greater than his king, than his master. A messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. And if you understand these things, if you know these things, verse 17, then you're blessed when you do them because you do them out of understanding why, understanding who Jesus is, understanding the authority of Jesus. He said, I'm speaking to all of you. Listen to this, please. We'll pick this up tomorrow, but listen to this now. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. I got to stop there. Let it soak in. He said, I ain't talking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. That means that not all of those people in that upper room belong to Jesus, even though they've been following Jesus for three years. It means that not everybody in that upper room is, is a part with Jesus, even though they've been following Jesus, even though they're in the, the aide de camp, the closest people to Jesus. doesn't mean that they're all belonging to Jesus. I know whom I have chosen. God speaks. And we just simply have to stand in awe. But we'll talk about that position of chosen tomorrow.
so you don't want to miss it. Father, we thank you for the blessing of today. We thank you for the word of God, for the reality of Christ, for the love that you have extended toward man, and that while we were still sinners, Christ would come and die for the ungodly. Father, thank you. We praise you this day. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, guys, God bless you, keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, and we'll catch you tomorrow for the, the reality of whom Jesus has chosen in verse 18 to begin with. Y'all take care. <laughs>